0: John was on sound as well (laughs) as doing the Bible reading. Uh, Good evening, I'm Belinda. I am the Associate Minister here at Darling Street Anglican Church and it's good to be with you here tonight as we do our last in our series on Acts. So we've been going through Acts for... um, What am I doing? I'm trying to connect things without really... Actually, things that don't really aren't really supposed to connect together. Um, we've go- been going through Acts this term and last term as well, and this is actually the last in the series, although not the last in the book of Acts. There's uh, more dear, oh, dear. I'm very <laughs> there's still another um, eight, nine chapters to go. So maybe we'll do that some other time. Now, has anyone here? been to Ephesus anyone no one no one at 10 a.m. tons of people have been But you guys are younger that's probably why well I have I've been to Ephesus and here's a picture of the um amphitheater at Ephesus and when I went to Ephesus uh, this was going to be a highlight of my life Really, um, that was the plan. I was so excited. It was sort of a dream come true. We went there about um, five or six years ago with our kids, with our family of five kids, uh, my husband John and I. And, um, you know, I thought as a minister, how amazing to get to walk where Paul had walked. Um, to be in that very place which we've just heard talked about um, in the Bible reading just now, and, and where the Ephesian church grew up, where, where Paul wrote that, well, he didn't write the letter to the Ephesians there, but the place where he wrote, the, the people lived where he wrote the letter, uh, it's mentioned in Revelation too. It's one of the churches that uh, Jesus particularly addresses in the book of Revelation. So we went there in summer, and uh, when we got there, we found ourselves a place in the amphitheatre, and actually here, I've drawn it on this photo. Can you see? Two adults and five little circles, that's for the kids. So we were there, and um, and, you know, oh, I forgot to say, one of the other reasons I was really excited about going there was because my daughter, Lauren, was studying at Bible college at the time, and so I thought, what better for a Bible college student than to get to go? to Ephesus. I mean, maybe Jerusalem, That's that, that is better. But Ephesus is pretty good, right? Uh, so we went there, we found ourselves this place to sit and um, you can see where it is. And then uh, what happened was this, I got out my little traveling Bible and we all sat down and I read this passage that you've just heard read just now and I read it, and as I read it, I got really emotional. I started to get a bit teary, and I got a little quaver in my voice, and I was just so moved. And then I looked up, and this is what the kids were doing. (laughs) They were all sitting like that. And then one of them said, when is this going to be over? And someone else said, yeah, can we go soon? And that sort of just, you know, crushed my dreams. And um, anyway, that's, that shaped the whole, the whole day there, really. So the other things that, were ha- that happened, it was 40 degrees. We had no water. There was no shade. There were packs of tourists. One of the kids got lost. And to crown it all off, Lauren, our little Bible college student, said... Uh, Here's what she said. She said, well, first of all, she wouldn't move from the amphitheatre because she said she wasn't really interested in ruins, she wasn't really interested in Ephesus, and she actually didn't see the point of being there in the first place. (laughs) Mum's dreams ended. Well, what was the point? What was the point of that? What was the point indeed? Well, we could ask the same question about this passage that we've just read. What is the point of this being here in the Bible? Why is it included in the book of Acts? Out of 28 chapters, uh, the author Luke has included one chapter on Paul's time in Ephesus, and half of that chapter is devoted to this one incident. So Paul was in Ephesus for almost three years but half of the chapter is devoted to one incident. So it must be something special. It must be there for a reason. Now, you probably know that some parts of the Bible are descriptive and some parts are prescriptive. They tell you what to do. Some just describe what happened. And really, I think, at least on the surface, this incident, this passage, is purely descriptive. Uh, there's no moral to the story. There's no happy ending. There's no Luke doesn't say uh, at the end of it, and so you should. Dot dot dot. No no, it just stops, and then Paul goes somewhere else. And in fact, Paul isn't really even. He doesn't even really feature there, does he? He doesn't get to go there. He stays away um, from the trouble. In fact, God really barely features. So what's the point? What are we supposed to make of it? Well, a few observations. Just before this, what has happened is that Paul has announced his intention to move on out of Asia and towards Jerusalem and Rome. So this is his last activity in Asia. I'll show you a map just so you can get an idea. (laughs) I've done a nice big circle of Ephesus there. Uh, So so he's announced his intention to move on to Jerusalem and Rome. And so really this is a sort of a climax of the persecution that Paul has experienced while he's been in Asia. But it also marks um, the beginning of the more intense persecution that he is to experience in the rest of the book. So there's a sense in which this is a sort of a turning point in the book. And it's very reminiscent of Jesus walking the path, turning his face towards Jerusalem only a few decades earlier. And like his Lord Jesus, Paul is going to suffer and die. And in the first part of the chapter that we didn't hear read, the Jews oppose Paul and the message of hope that he brings about Jesus. But here it's actually the Gentiles, the people who aren't Jews, who oppose him. Now, as I said, uh, by this time, Paul has been in Ephesus for almost three years. But now there's what Luke calls a great disturbance about the way. That is Christianity. And this disturbance is stirred up by one person, Demetrius, a silversmith. And now he was probably a leader of a guild, like an association for workers, Um, who were associated with the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. And Demetrius made silver shrines or possibly idols um, for worship of Artemis. So it says shrines in that translation we just heard. It could have been idols. And more on him in a moment. But first, a few things about Ephesus and the worship of Artemis, which was also called the Artemis cult. So the cult of Artemis has been described as one of the most widespread and powerful of pagan cults. And some ancient sources actually say it was the most widely followed in the ancient world. And uh, Ephesus, as you see on the map, was Artemis worship central. So if you worshiped Artemis, Ephesus was the place to be. She was the goddess of business. Uh, The whole economy in Ephesus revolved around Artemis Even the coins and official documents had her image, her picture and name um, on them And sadly people actually literally sacrificed their children to Artemis uh, there was the Temple of Artemis. That was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's not there anymore, so don't go trying to find it. Um, it was, fun fact, actually used as a bank. So it was so safe and uh, people considered it such a sanctuary that they deposited their money there. And, of course, with God, uh, Artemis being the goddess of business, I suppose that makes sense. So really, I think you could say that Artemis was actually just the face of the great god, money, who we know well in our own city. Uh, and here in this passage we've heard read, Luke describes this guy, Demetrius, doing his silver Sith, smith thing. Um, I guess enjoying the status quo and just being part of this Artemis worshipping machine. And I if he was watching and wondering as things started to change in his world all because of this new religion this new way of life Christianity Uh, and Christianity was growing it was growing in momentum it was growing in numbers it was growing in influence and by this time it was a large and recognized movement this movement was disruptive It disrupted society, it disrupted the economy, it disrupted the very culture. Because the people who followed Jesus were changed. They were the same in some senses, but entirely different in others. And they were changed because they come to know the one and only true God, the God of the Jews, but embodied in the risen Lord Jesus, alive with the power to forgive sins, to heal, to actually deliver on all the longings of the human heart. And this was something new. It, It caused people to throw out all the ways that they had previously sought meaning and purpose and to instead give their allegiance to Jesus and to give their allegiance to his body, the church. And these people now knew themselves to be free, to be fortunate beyond measure, to have gone from death to life, from darkness to light. They followed a Lord whose way was radically different from anything they'd ever known before who uh, advocated love for enemies, who said that the only way to life is death to self, who offered a burden that is easy and a yoke that is light, who offered salvation for nothing and yet expected everything, demanded everything. And there is undeniable evidence well, for Demetrius, for the people there, there was undeniable evidence that actually this is the true God at work because people who were previously enemies now called themselves brothers and sisters. Um, There was supernatural healings, amazing miracles, people joyfully renouncing that which had previously enslaved them. And I want to read to you an ancient description of Christians which was written in the early 2nd century, so a bit later than, than when this um, incident happened, um, and it was written to explain Christians to the Roman rulers. It's found in a text called the Epistle to Diogenetus. I think I said that wrong this morning. Um, I think it's Diogenetus. Diogenetus. It's quite hard to say. Uh, you've probably heard it before. You might have heard, heard it before. And uh, here's some of what it says. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak, speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it is, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. So, Demetrius, while well, well, he lived a bit earlier than this was written, he might have seen something like that in the Christians. And he might have witnessed something like this happen as well. Um, just a bit earlier in Acts 19, verses 18 to 20, it says this. Many of those who believed uh, believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So you see, Demetrius had clearly watched, heard, as this movement had taken hold. And and so here, in this passage, he rightly recognises the extreme threat that Christianity poses to his industry, to society, to the economy, to his whole world. Everything he's worked for, everything he's enjoyed, everything he hopes for, it looks like to him, is under threat. And so he does what human beings do when their gods are threatened. He lets fear take the wheel and he fights to hold on to his god. Now when I say gods, by the way, uh, I'm talking about the little G gods, um, idols, false gods. And that is anything or anyone we give ultimate value to and invest with the ability to deliver our goals, uh, whatever they are. And I'm sure you've heard New York theologian Tim Keller who uh, talk about this. He describes an idol as anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And we all have these, right? I'm sure this is not a new concept to you. We're designed to worship, and if we don't worship God, then we will worship something else. Something else will become our ultimate. Uh, yes, maybe money, um, but also status, security, family, friends, ministry, church, my way, etc., etc, etc. Pick an idol. I, I um, want to tell you, I recently had a facial and I went to a um, clinic. It was, it's really not a clinic. They, call, they like to call themselves a clinic because it sounds more medical. Um, but really, it's sort of more like a chain store. And uh, it's like a temple. So, and the idol is youth and beauty, youth and beauty. And, and they promise to deliver happiness and love if you can just attain the youth and beauty. Um, Anyway, so I'm having my facial, lying there having my facial, and the young beautician who's in her 20s, she's a lovely young girl, she asked me what my skincare regime was. And I told her that did not please her. Then she asked me, and what injectables do you use? Because you see, that's a given when you worship at the altar of youth and beauty. You need injectables when you get to my age. I said, I don't use any. She said, well, you should. (laughs) She said, you just need it for these lines here, and then it'll be really good. Your face won't show any expression. I said, I like expression. She said, disapprovingly, Oh, yes, very natural. Because, you see, natural is a no-no. Natural's no good. We don't want expression. Oh, this poor girl. She is a lovely girl. She's very slim, but she's on a diet to try and lose weight. She's attractive. She's a beautiful girl. Anyone here would look at her and go, yeah, you, you got it in the youth and beauty stakes. But no, no, no. She gets Botox injections and she laments that she started too late. Because kids, you've got to start when you're 18, apparently. She's in her 20s. She's left it too late. Do you know, uh, I pass no judgment. I'm part of this little scenario myself, not the Botox. But you know, I'm there having my facial too. And, and when I sit there in the waiting room of this place, I look at the other customers and I think, ordinary, ordinary, ordinary. Middle-aged, young, but all ordinary. None of these people have actually attained the youth and beauty. Um, well, not like the, the pictures uh, promise. No, no, they're chasing something that is unattainable. And and they're believing the promise of these posters that show uh, um, beautiful, young, hair-free couples laughing into each other's eyes. And By the way, the facial made me break out really, really badly, and I've still got the blotches on my face. And the other day, John looked at me and he said to me, are you all right? You've got blotches all over your face. I was like... I'm chasing youth and beauty, love. No, I didn't get youth and beauty. I got, um, you know, the pox. Well, that's what it looks like anyway. <laughs> um, my 17-year-old twins have just started year 12, and they are confronting the gods of the HSC. Uh, the mantra that says, if you don't do well, you'll amount to nothing. Oh. By the way, I know I talked about the HSC last week and so that's enough about the HSC from me. That's just what it is in their world. So I could go on. I mean, I could think of many other idols uh, and I know that you could too. You know what I'm talking about, right? These idols, they're like the emperor's new clothes. (laughs) We just keep saying that these things are important. These things are God. We go along with the crowd and and believe it, even though if we just take a good look, then we can see it's obviously not true. It's not going to deliver. So Demetrius, back to Demetrius, he's afraid of losing his God, and so he fights to keep what seems so crucial to him. He pulls out his handbook of how to fight when your idol is threatened. Um, That's not a real handbook, I just made made that up. Um, But here's what you do, you pull out your six weapons. Number one, don't ask questions about your God. Don't examine if that God is delivering or not. Instead, point to attack the threat and make sure to be really successful that that threat has a face and a name. Um, Demetrius chose Paul, who it is true was the leader, but there were plenty of other people named in the book of Acts who were with him. And actually, even more than that, there was a whole movement involved of unnamed people, ordinary people. And even more than that... This is a work of God, what's happening. But a successful attack has a face and a name, and so Demetrius accuses Paul, pointing out that Paul outrageously says that man-made gods are not gods at all. It's sort of ironic, isn't it? Here's the guy who actually is making the gods, the gods. Number three, cast blame. Blame. Brene Brown says that blame is a way for humans to discharge pain and discomfort. A way to get rid of your pain and discomfort. An easy way to get rid of that pain without having to do the work of examining your own heart, your own motivations, your own actions. Number four, exaggerate. Take the truth and notch it up a little or a lot. Number five, play on people's fears. See, Demetrius names the dangers. Uh, that is, the loss of their good name, uh, the loss of face, which would have been tremendously frightening in a culture that was ruled by honour and shame. Um, he, he plays on the fear of the commercial failure that is at stake. The, the, he plays on the fear of the loss of status for Artemis, which would mean a loss of status for the whole city. Number six, gather a mob. Find people who will listen to your grievances and who share your idols. For Demetrius, that was the silversmiths and the other craftsmen. So Demetrius follows the How to Cause Trouble handbook and it works a treat. There's chaos. The mob are angry. Their God is threatened. Although, verse 32, I just love this one, uh, where he says... The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. So point seven, tell anyone you can. Get them to listen too and join in too because there's always people spoiling for a fight, looking for trouble. They don't care what it's about. Now this amphitheater had uh, capacity for... About 20,000, maybe even up to 25,000 people. So, unsurprisingly, with that many people, the Jew, Alexander, couldn't settle them down. Uh, and it's only after two hours that the city clerk, the, the city official, a uh, high-ranking official, he manages to disperse them. And he does this by reminding them that actually Paul and Co. haven't done anything wrong. Uh, by he, he also affirms the goddess Artemis. Uh, third, he reminds them that there is a legitimate way for dealing with real grievances. There's a process, there's a court, and they can press charges if they want. And, and there was actually a legal assembly that met three times a month, which they could um, take issues like that too. And fourth, he warns them, and he does that because... Uh, Ephesus was a Greek city, um, but it was, Rome, uh, it was ruled by Rome. It had a, a Roman um, Empire, the Roman Empire ruled it and the Romans didn't like civil disobedience, which is what this was. Then Paul leaves, the end. I, th- I think what we see in this description is a typical human response when idols are threatened. People blame, people demonise the other, they gather a mob, they get angry even when they don't really know what's going on, when they haven't even tried to understand the facts of the situation. It's the way of the world, it's our culture, it's the way we do things around here. Except for those who worship Jesus, it's not. It's not our way. We don't gather a mob. We don't demonize the other. We don't blame. We don't exaggerate. We don't riot. No, what we do is we examine our own hearts. We examine our own human propensity to make something other than God into God we ensure that we haven't created the most dangerous man-made idol there is and that is God made in my own image. And if after doing that, we discover that we do have a legitimate grievance, then we at least follow the processes available to even the pagans. And if we're justifiably angry, not because our idols have been threatened, but because the true and living God's glory is misrepresented, because there is injustice, because others are not being loved, then we act. Disruption must happen. But we do not do it according to Demetrius' guidebook. Now we do it with the countercultural weapons of Jesus, with truth, with righteousness, with peace, with the shield of faith, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we remember who we are, not of that world of darkness, but of a kingdom of light. Do you know, I think that the hardest thing about following Jesus is following Jesus. What I struggle with is the disruption that following Jesus must inevitably bring. The gospel is disruptive. It cannot not disrupt. (laughs) But I don't want to be dragged by an angry mob down to the amphitheater, do you? You know, I am so enraptured with my little G-God of comfort and ease That when the beautician asks me, what are you doing for Christmas? I tell her, I'm a minister and I'll be working. Conversation stopper. Guaranteed. Why don't I say to her, I'm celebrating that I've discovered the source and fulfiller of every human longing, of all that I ever wanted and more. Because if not me, then who? Who's going to be willing to disrupt their world and her world and help her find her way out of the darkness and into the light? See, if we don't believe it enough to live it, then who will? If we don't believe it enough to live it, even in the face of our inclination to riot, then who will? Who will bring the light if we don't? See, Jesus' way is disruptive. It's beautifully disruptive. It offers the light of grace and love and truth and fulfillment of every human longing into a world that is clouded with false gods. But it won't disrupt our culture unless it disrupts us first, unless we are changed, unless the idols in our hearts are demolished. And I think that's the point. I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer uh, now. And I want to pray this prayer, which is quite old. It's from the 1940s. It's written by a man called A.W. Tozer. And he was a very, very influential Christian who lived a disruptive life and he led many, many people to know Jesus. He never had any theological um, training. He preached up a storm again and again and he wrote prayers. So let's pray. O God, be thou exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasures shall seem dear unto me if only thou art glorified in my life. Be thou exalted over my friendships. I am determined that thou shalt be above all, though I must stand deserted and alone in the midst of the earth. Be thou exalted above my comforts. Though it mean the loss of body, bodily comforts and the carrying of heavy crosses, I shall keep my vow made this day before thee. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please thee, even if as a result I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream Rise, O Lord, into thy proper place of honour, above my ambitions, above my likes and dislikes, above my family, my health, and even my life itself. Let me sink that thou mayest rise above. And we pray this for the glory and honour and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.